0: Well, good morning, Desert Springs Church. It's good to be with some of you again, and it's good to be with all of you uh, this morning. Our question this morning is, what does the Bible say, uh, kind of about what we've just been doing? What does the Bible say about worship? So this morning, uh, some of us are turning again. All of us are going to be joining Paul and what he writes about this in our study passage in the book of Romans chapter 12. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Romans, chapter 12. And Romans is just such a a grand place to be. It's been wonderful to be spending the weekend here with many of you and others, looking through Paul's writing to these Christians. And he writes in this chapter, in chapter 12, precisely about their worship. Now, when I say worship, I wonder what you think of. Maybe you think of burning issues of drums or choruses or Organs or should we have stained glass windows or creeds or choirs or how religious should our language be? Well, Paul has a very different idea uh, When he talks about worship Paul makes this transition to the second half of his letter with a call to worship God correctly So chapters 1 to 11 have been the magnificent gospel of the doctrine uh, rather doctrine of the gospel Now, in the second half, he's drawing out the implications of what the wonderful mercy of God means in our lives. And that's what we see in verse 1. He's concerned that we worship God correctly. Look with me there, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Uh, Notice what Paul says here about the nature of worship. Worship is offering your whole self to God. It's a living sacrifice. Now, friend, this may be the most important thing you hear in this sermon this morning. So dial into this and make sure you're understanding that. Paul clearly has a very expansive idea of worship. Uh, From this initial image in the chapter, we begin to realize that the idea that we have of restricting worship, when we refer to worship as just to, to church buildings and singing songs is nowhere near as as expansive as the way Paul understands worship. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament are any of the words which we translate as worship used exclusively about religious gatherings like this one. According to the Bible, worship certainly includes what we're doing this morning. It includes corporate worship of our gatherings on the Lord's Day. But worship itself is a far broader thing that encompasses everywhere we are, every day of the week, and everything we do with everyone we know. I'm going to say that again, because I don't know if you hear that very often. Worship itself is a far broader thing that encompasses everywhere we are, every day of the week, everything we do, with everyone we know. Our worship is our serving God. Well, if that's what worship is, why do we do it? Well, notice the very first word in the chapter. Therefore, and when you're taught to read your Bible and you see a therefore, what is the question you're supposed to ask? What is it therefore? That's right. Well, it lets you know that what Paul is saying now is based upon what's gone before. That he's taken this wonderful exposition of the gospel that we've been considering, and he's now saying, well, what difference does this make? He says, in view of God's mercies. Paul has been expounding God's truth, and now in chapter 12, he moves to exhorting God's people. Paul here follows the biblical pattern of divine initiative, which he's been looking at in the first 11 chapters, and then human response. Chapters 1 to 11 are about divine initiative. Now Paul turns to the human response, and Paul calls this response your spiritual act of worship. And friends, worship should be a delightful thing to us. Not primarily because we delight in worship, whether uh, we mean by that corporate singing or just individual obedience, but, but because we delight in the God that we are worshiping. He is an entirely delightful being. And anyway, we don't find ourselves delighting in Him, the fault is with us. It's not with Him, it's in what we're not fully understanding. Have you ever gotten to know somebody, and the more you get to know them, the better they are? And you go like, wow, this is, this is a really unusually good person. Okay, God's like that times a million. You just, as you get to know him as a Christian, and you get to know him better and better, he is better and better. So consider how this God has loved us. Uh, John Calvin said that the heart must be harder than iron which is not kindled by the doctrine of the first 11 chapters of Romans into a love for God. So what we wanna do in our time together here is work through this 12th chapter of Romans and put our own worship to the test. Uh, Maybe we wanna be changing the way that some of us here today think about worship. So here are 10 questions to test for true worship of God. Some of them are a little overlapping, but I'm just following through chapter 12, all right? So here are 10 questions, which could also, if you write them down, they're all short, could also function as a nice prayer list for you personally and for Desert Springs Church this year. So think about that, all right? Number one, here goes. Are you being transformed? Are you being transformed? We, need to, we see here clearly that worship involves being transformed. Look at verse two. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Some people talk about worship today and think how we can best worship in a way that sort of fits into this world. But it's significant here that Paul specifically cautions Christians against conforming to the pattern of this world. He knows that Christians must not be conformed to this age. Don't, he says, don't be conformed to this world. We shouldn't be conformed to this world because as Christians, we are no longer of this world. I'm always struck by how Jesus on the last night of his earthly ministry prays for his disciples. In his prayer, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Well, brothers and sisters, if this is true of us, then we shouldn't be conformed to it. And if that's what we shouldn't be conformed to, this world, well, what what should we do? Well, do, he says, be transformed. You see there, but be transformed. Okay, what kind of transformation is he talking about? Well, he writes uh, to the Corinthians about their being transformed more and more to reflect the Lord's glory, his his likeness. Uh, We become a a mirror which is filled with someone else's image. And we display God's character to his creation. Uh, If you've had somebody who's known you for 10 years and you've been a Christian for 10 years, they should see more fruit of the spirit in your life. They should see you being more like Christ in the way you love God and love others. Well, how does this happen? Well, he says here, by the renewing of your mind. Okay, is this mind renewing supernatural or natural? Well, I I think it's, it's God's supernatural work, certainly, but normally through the means of our study of God's word. What we're doing right now is the normal way that we are transformed. It's to adjust our thinking according to what God has revealed. So our minds are renewed. They're supernaturally changed by God's spirit. And that renewal normally happens through the working of his word. Interesting, isn't it? That true worship here is the furthest thing from being a mindless activity. Have you ever heard people talk about worship like it's just closing your eyes and having a feeling? Like that's the core of worship? Well, yeah, maybe in pagan religions. But in Christianity, it's the opposite of that. I mean, look, here Paul says that we come to this spiritual, or some of your translations may read "their reasonable service of worship by having our minds transformed, renewed, changed. Some of you may wonder, why does Ryan Kelly preach such long sermons? (laughs) I've got friends who go to churches And they're in and out in under an hour, and the sermon's 18 to 20 minutes long. Well, friends, the Bible says nothing about length of sermons, let me be clear about that. But I do wanna point out here that God says that our minds need to be renewed. And that's what's happening by our seriously studying the word. So when we become a Christian, every part of our being is affected, and not least of that is our imagining, our loving, our desires, our reasoning and thinking and look why he says to do this so that you can know how to please God you see that in last phrase verse 2 so that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good pleasing and perfect will now i hope you see some need for humility in when it comes to discerning God's will too many of us today i think seem to believe that whatever immediately feels right to us must be right But here Paul presents at the very genesis of our obedience to God our need to discern what that obedience will involve. We have to begin by laying down our assumptions that we're always right and realize that we need to have even our consciences reshaped to God's revelation of his own will in his word. True worship always involves that kind of transformation that Paul writes of here. Okay, a second test that Paul's letter should raise in your own mind about your worship. Number two, are you thinking about yourself soberly? Are you thinking about yourself soberly? Now, it may surprise you to realize that this is part of your worship, your service of God. But then if your thinking is going to be transformed as part of that worship, then I guess it's really not that surprising if worship involves your thinking soberly. We'll give verse three. For by grace given me, I say to every one of you do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. I don't know if you guys ever have the misfortune of watching television, and particularly TBN or really bad religious programming. But there is a lot of stuff out there that calls itself, or at least implies that it's Christianity, but which is really just all about a kind of positive thinking, where you imagine the best you can about yourself. And then as if there's some creative power resident in your own imagination, you create your own bright future with your own positive thoughts about yourself. And every year there's some new bestseller that says stuff like this. I mean, well, I don't wanna start. Okay, so you, you get the idea. Well, Paul here writes cautioning specifically against having a high view of yourself. He exhorts us against wrong thinking. Do not, he says, think of yourself more highly than you ought. I guess we all have this tendency to exaggerate our own importance. And that tendency is not just in our actions uh, or our words to other. No, our, our tendency has its origin in our very thinking. So Paul exhorts us here to right thinking. Do, Paul says, Think of yourself with sober judgment. And how does he define sober judgment? Well, he says, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. And what does that mean? Just don't affect being greater than you are, uh, more holy than you are. And what you are, if you've been given true faith, you're a, you're a Christian. What a wonderful name to bear. You're, you're a Christian someone whom God has loved to the point of crucifying love. True worship involves thinking soberly of yourself and that your value has been set by the death of the Son of God on the cross for you. A third test that this chapter should raise in your own mind about your worship, number three, are you using your gifts? Are you using your gifts? Now again, if you've had the kind of singing-only understanding of worship, then this may seem strange to you. But Paul is clearly teaching here that part of our being transformed and part of the renewing which is supposed to go on is to bring us to worship God by using the gifts that he's given us. That's what he's talking about there in verses uh, 4 to 8. Look down at verse 4. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him go- govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So biblical worship is never going to demand that you have gifts you're not, you don't have. You may think, I don't really care about worship because I can't sing very well. Friend, friend. That's not what the Bible's talking about here. This spiritual worship verses one and two that you're supposed to give, it has to do with this, with using the gifts that you have been given. And you are failing to worship God truly and biblically if you're not using the gifts that God has given you to build up his body. Paul shows us by analogy first there in verses four to six and then starting in verse six and going through verse eight, he gives us a list of examples. Uh, We can't take time to go through all of them now, but. Please understand that these gifts are given to you so that you will not experience fulfillment. That's the kind of psychologized way that modern Christianity has gotten a hold of the gifts and spiritual gifts inventories. So I can understand myself better. Yeah, I don't really think you need to understand yourself better by looking inside so much. You need to look around the body and see what needs there are. And you need to just give yourself to start trying to meet those needs. You want to work so that others may be blessed and the church edified. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians at length about the gifts, he told them to esteem the gifts that build up the church. I wonder if that's the way you think. Wasn't the worship good today, you ask somebody after church. Well, are you drawing attention to how excited you got? Or to how well you You got to serve someone else and build them up. That's the worship that's really good this morning, according to Paul here. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. True biblical worship involves using what God gives you to build up others. Okay, a fourth test that this chapter can uh, really put up against your own claim to worship God. Number four, are you loving others? Are you loving others? Worship, according to this chapter, involves loving. Look there, starting in verse 9. Really verses 9 and 10. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Again, I'm just struck by this, at how Satan has twisted people's thinking about worship. Isn't it ironic that some people think of worship as one of the most self-absorbed, privatized activities of the Christian life? Now, they're kind of inner sanctum with, with eyes squeezed shut, you know, and the rest of the world just kind of out of imagination right now, obliterated from their thoughts. It's amazing how similar just, just me and Jesus can really sound and feel to, to just me, isn't it? Paul here presents genuine Christian worship as foursquare square opposed to such self-centeredness. In these couple of verses, he gives us a quick view of the quality and direction and practice of love. The quality of love has to be sincere, literally without hypocrisy. It's the real item flowing from a transformed heart. So can you see how God is honored and glorified by love being sincerely shown between Christians. Can you see how that would display his character even more than the most accomplished musical gifts? A community of mutual love must be one of the closest approximations of heaven that we can know in this fallen world. So what do your fellow church members think about you? Do they think that you're somebody who loves people? or are you known for your humorous complaining about people? Hey, if you're a brand new Christian, I understand the humorous complaining about people. If you've been a Christian for a while, I'd lose that from my lingo. I would try, and and I want you to know I'm a deeply sarcastic person. So I'm I'm preaching to myself here. (laughs) But I think we want to be known, we wanna give off the smell of being those people who really do like God that we're imaging, Love other people. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Uh, Paul is clear, too, on the direction of love. This love that we're to have is not to be a a worldly love for evil, uh, but rather a godly love for the good. He says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Okay, do people around you think that you are attached to the good, that you're joined to it, that you are inseparable from it? Well, that which is good, Paul says, cling to it. Well, how particularly can we do that? Well, that's why I think he speaks here of the practice of love. that's what's so good. And it's really very simple. This particular kind of love that he's speaking of here is the love which shows itself by devotion to honor others more than yourself. It's like what Paul said to the Philippians, count others better than yourself. Outdoing, showing respect for each other. I'm sure that Paul wrote these sentences here in verses nine and 10, because of the disunity in the Roman church, likely between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Well, I wonder what problems there are in Desert Spring Church that would be solved, not by becoming all flattering of each other, I'm not saying that, but by showing the kind of sincere devotion to honoring one another that Paul speaks of here. Do you understand that part of your obligation in joining this church is to study the work of the Spirit of God in the lives of other members, especially those who are not like you, and to express that in words to them and encourage them and bring praise to God that way. Friends, people are weighing problems more than blessings. That's the natural tendency. But let that be their strategy, never yours. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. True biblical worship involves loving others. A fifth test that chapter 12 can give us to apply to our worship. Number five, are you persevering? According to Romans 12, worship involves persevering. Look at verses 11 and 12. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Well, friends, we have to say that the kind of Christian life which only occasionally involves prayer and assumption of getting a pass on all suffering, really taking our happiness from earthly circumstances in which we try to use God for our own small ends in life and in which we know little if any zeal for God Friend, that kind of Christian life is no Christian life at all. No, in these short staccata expressions here, Paul is clear that we should keep going, not, not zealous zealouslessly, not without zeal, but, but fervently. See it there, verse 11. So God's Holy Spirit not only regenerates us, but he fills us for our journey. He brings us to the boiling point spiritually. We should also preserve and persevere with joy and hope He says there in the beginning of verse 12, uh, back in chapter 5 in Romans, Paul had written about the hope that we have in Christ. And, of course, in in chapter 8, those of us who were here yesterday heard that powerful conclusion in Greg's preaching at the end of Romans chapter 8. That wonderful crescendo of hope that we have in Christ. That resounding summary ringing with hope. Friend, without being joyful in hope, you won't persevere. You need to be joyful in hope today. Today so that you can keep believing in Jesus tomorrow. We must also persevere with patience in affliction. That's what he says in the second half of verse 12. Again, Paul had said back in chapter five, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Have you been a Christian long enough that you've realized you cannot persevere around suffering, but you have to persevere through it? A lot of times I, I see Christians who are looking for an endurance that they say, it's, yeah, it's going to come by me figuring out how I can avoid this suffering. And hey, I'm not saying don't avoid suffering when you can. But friends, in a fallen world, following Jesus who was crucified, I promise you, because Jesus promised us, that if you want to follow him, part of that will mean you will need to endure suffering with Patience. That's part of your spiritual worship of God. What was it Christ said? Take up your cross and follow me. And we are also to worship God by persevering with faithfulness in prayer. It's in the last bit of verse 12 there. We know from chapter eight that God's own spirit is concerned with our praying to God. Well, friends, we have to be concerned that we're faithful in prayer because if we cease persevering in prayer, in what sense can we be said to really believe in God if we don't even talk to him? What what kind of relationship do you have with somebody you don't even talk to? True biblical worship involves persevering. Well, we'll look at three more tests of our worship here in quick succession. uh, Verses 13, 14, and 15. Test number six, are you sharing? True Christian worship involves sharing. Look at verse 13. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Again, sometimes worship, we may be tempted to think, is all about ourselves, but it's really not that way at all. In fact, here in verse 13, we are told to share, to contribute, to give, to seek, to practice hospitality, to be ready to take people into our house. Now, friends, I don't know if you thought this is what Romans was about. I don't know if you thought Romans was all predestination and free will. But friends, once you grasp something of the height and depth of God's mercy, That's supposed to be shown in our own lives. And it gets very practical. Like who you're having over for lunch today. What kind of outreach you personally are practicing. This is pretty straightforward. If you want to be a Christian, this basic impulse to share and practice of sharing should be typical of you. And if it's not, you should ask, Why not? Paul here talks not merely about sharing in general, but about sharing with a couple of groups of people in particular that I think we should notice. He exhorts them there to share with God's people who are in need there in verse 13. Did you notice that? With God's people who are in need. 1 John 3 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. We have a special obligation for one another as Christians. As Paul wrote to the Galatians, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That's Galatians 6.10. Friends, when someone else in the body is bearing a burden, as you have knowledge and opportunity, it is to be your burden to bear as well. So are you aware of some of the people who have just huge amounts of student debt in this congregation? They're having trouble paying it back? Look, guys, in your 50s and 60s with good jobs, I'm telling you, you should be caring for them. You should know that kind of stuff. You should be praying for them. You should have breakfast with them. See what the guy's plan is. See if he needs to think better about this to care for his family. Friends, when we join a church, we're saying, my life is your business. And your life is my business. Now, we can do that in crazy ways that are unhelpful, and you all get to work on that yourselves. (laughs) That can be abused, but that is not the danger in most of our churches today. The danger in most of our churches is we pitch up to church, look like everything's fine, and then leave. Well, that's a great way to make sure Christianity is extinguished in the world. That doesn't contribute anything to anybody. There's no real suffering and no real answering to suffering. There's no real opportunity for love being shown. Christianity must be personal, definitely, but it can never be private. Now, Christian charity is not finally an ingrown affair. Paul also says here that part of our offering ourselves as living sacrifices is to share, he says there in the end of verse 13, with strangers. Do you notice that in the second half of verse 13? Practice hospitality. That's a little mild. It's really more like pursue hospitality. And that word for hospitality is loving strangers. Pursue loving strangers by opening your home to them. It's one thing for instance, to reach out and love to people that you know, but it's still another to reach out and love to those that you don't. Such sharing is another test of true biblical worship. So please understand, if you liked some song that Drew just led us in and it moved your heart, I am telling you, God's word says you are not worshiping God if you are not acting in a loving way toward the people you meet with here today. Please do not misunderstand what's going on when we talk about worship. Here's number seven. Are you blessing? Worship involves blessing others. That's what Paul says in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Some people may have some understanding of Christianity as a simple spiritual force that you can use for your own ends. But according to Paul here, God's charity is to be reflected in our own. We are to bless, that is to to say good things to and about others. We are to speak for others. Uh, We are to pray for others. Now, this is an unlikely response You know, not cursing to those who persecute you. But after all, wasn't it Jesus who said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And isn't this the response that fits in with the way we have been treated by God in Christ? This is how he's treated us. So true Christian worship involves blessing those who oppose you and persecute you. Test number eight, are you sympathizing We also see here that biblical worship involves being sympathetic. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Friends, that's an important word because I think sometimes Christians think that the height of spirituality is to attain a sort of level of detachment from this world. Where we are always steady and nothing ever moves us. But that's not true. So, Guy Christian, who's known the Lord 30 years, and you're married. You know how your wife cries when other people are in trouble sometimes? And you think, what, is she from another planet? It's not hurting us and our family. Guy Christian, that wife of yours is not just showing that she's a woman. She's showing that she's a Christian. She's showing that the image of God is reflected in that kind of sympathy. That's what we want men to show. We want our elders to exemplify that kind of sympathizing with those around us because that's what true Christian worship involves, says Paul. Test number nine. Number nine for your worship. Are you being humble? Biblical worship involves being humble. Look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Well, in these three statements, Paul counters our pride with each other, particularly with the lowly, and then within ourselves. Paul calls us to humility with each other when he says there live in harmony with one another. He says literally, it's be of the same mind as one another. Very much like what Paul exhorted the Philippians. Be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So this is the harmony that comes not so much from you agreeing with me, but from us agreeing with Christ. Because his is the mind that we all have. Because we've been studying his word, And we're transformed by his word. And so as we come to have more of his mind, we then are having more of the same mind with each other. This is the harmony that comes that way. Have you ever noticed before how much harmony comes from humility? How much harmony comes from humility? And that when there is a lack of harmony it can often be traced back to a lack of humility. And that when there is a lack of humility, you can predict a coming lack of harmony. No humility will mean soon no harmony. Paul also calls Christians to a special humility with the lowly. Do not be pridefully standoffish, he says, but associate with the lowly or people of low position. Well, in the Roman church, very particularly what that meant was that people who were of Caesar's household, because they had people of Caesar's household, you know, like people who worked at the White House. They had people like that in their congregation. They needed to be mixing with people of lower positions, like common slaves. Now, in our egalitarian culture, it's a little harder for us to imagine how radical that is. But what would that mean here in Albuquerque? I don't know. I know back in D.C. that means, hey, you guys who are chiefs of staff, you hang out with the interns. You care about legislative assistants and legislative correspondents. These people who are low down in the Senate and, and House of Representatives offices. So whatever it would mean here in Albuquerque. More widely, though, for us, I think it means don't stick only to those who you most naturally value and who you're most comfortable with in a worldly sense. So military men, be willing to mix with civilian government employees. Students, be willing to mix with housewives. Idealistic nonprofit employees, be willing to mix with people in business. New moms, care for each other, but reach out to older mothers as well. Asians, Caucasians, Navajo, Hispanics, internationals of all sorts, reach out to those who aren't just like you. Absolutely fine for you to have friendships with people who are ethnically like you. Nothing wrong with that. But if you're a Christian, Please cultivate friendships with people with whom you share the spirit of Christ and you don't share anything else. That will display the gospel. (laughs) Friends, God himself has been willing to associate with the humble, hasn't he? Remember the words of Mary's prophecy when Gabriel told her she was going to be giving the Messiah to the world? She said, God has lifted up the humble. Paul reminded the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 1 Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the weak things of this world. What kind of Christianity is it that only befriends people based on worldly status? Somebody comes to the church who has a a really cool position in life, and all of a sudden he has a lot of friends. Well, that doesn't sound like Christianity. That sounds like the world. If the person next to you is a wealthy rancher, are you, Christian, really more likely to be kind to him than if he's unemployed or a student? That shouldn't be that way among us. And in yourself, Paul says in that last phrase in verse 16, do not be conceited. He'd already warned the Gentile Christians twice in Romans 11 not to be conceited. And now he gives a more general command to Christians in the Roman church. It's just, he's repeating kind of Proverbs 3, 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. My wife says about me, always confident, sometimes right. (laughs) Do not be wise in your own eyes. True biblical worship involves you being humble. Final test from this chapter about your worship, number 10, number 10. Are you overcoming evil with good? Because Christian worship involves overcoming evil with good. That's what the last few verses of the chapter are about. Look with me at verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, maybe some people imagine taking revenge is consistent with being a Christian. But brother or sister, every time you take revenge, you're just screaming out, Oh God, please send me to hell." Because I am really careful about what everybody deserves. And I know she deserves this. Ah, well, if you're going to be so careful about what we all deserve, then maybe you need to recall what you deserve from God. Friend, revenge is just not our territory as Christians. Revenge is forbidden by that first phrase there very plainly in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. In consideration of the church's witness, Paul lays out a couple of general principles of good overcoming evil. And verse 17, he essentially tells Christians to try to gain approval of all. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of all. Don't provide your pagan neighbors with any just cause for criticism, he says. And then he gives them a second general principle, be live at peace with all. Paul gives a couple of qualifiers to this there. He says, uh, one, as far as it depends on you, and two, as far as it's possible. Because sometimes it doesn't depend on you, and sometimes it's not possible. But as far as it is, and you can live at peace with all. Revenge, he says, is really just unnecessary because we can leave it to God. It's not there is no justice in the world. It's just you and I are not really well qualified as judges. We're too self-interested and partial in our vision. That's what he says there in verse 19, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. There, the Lord assures us that he will make it his business to repay folks, so we don't need to. Not only is it necessary, but Paul says that there are benefits of our not taking revenge. That's what he's talking about in verse 20, when he writes, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then Paul quotes Proverbs 25, 21 and 22 here basically saying, treat your enemy as someone in need. He is exhorting you to be more concerned about not sinning and helping others not to sin than about your being sinned against. Cause your enemy to blush because of your kindness to him. By giving him food and drink, shame your enemy to repentance. Turn your enemy into a friend. Just because the words are so strong here, a little side note, if you are in an abusive relationship, you can pervert this into thinking that you're supposed to do nothing about that. Let me just speak on behalf of the elders of this church because they seem to be godly men. If you are in an abusive relationship, you need to make that known to the elders of the church. You need to get them to help you so you can stop that person who's abusing you from sinning in that way. So Paul comes to the summary command there in verse 21. Which would really include what I just said to you. Overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil. So true biblical worship involves this overcoming evil with good. So there we are. I hope it was not too painful for a morning sermon. It was not an 18 minute wonder. You know, we transgressed the 40 minute boundary. We may be even heading to 50 before it's all done. <clears throat> but true biblical worship involves being, if we just go back over the list, we've just done transformed Thinking soberly, using your gifts, loving others, persevering, sharing, blessing, sympathizing, being humble, and overcoming. Oh, that's a lot. Worship, when it comes to the biblical God, involves a lot more than just getting into a song or two, doesn't it? It's often been noted when commenting on the image up there in verse 1 of living sacrifices, that the problem with living sacrifices is that they tend to get up and crawl off the altar. It's true. That's why Paul has to write at such length and with such specificity here. Because living the Christian life is something that though we do it by God's grace, we must do. Passivity is not a good image for the Christian life. It's a fine image for grace. It's all of grace, that's true, we contribute nothing to that. But having received grace, we become exceedingly active, not passive. The Christian life involves our effort. We find that worship is not just a singing thing, it's a living thing. Worship is not just a Sunday thing, but it's an everyday thing. Worship is not just an emotional thing, but it's an active thing. Worship is not just a private thing, but it involves others. And doesn't this chapter seem like a great prayer list for yourself and for Desert Springs Church? I love it. I used it as a prayer list this morning for me as I prayed for myself, my family, members of my church. Friends, we are worshipers by nature. The question is who or what we will worship. I wonder what you've come here worshiping today. Not what other people think you're worshiping. Maybe not what even you think you're worshiping. But what God knows you're really worshiping. An ancient church maxim declares that how we worship shows what we believe. Well, as you've considered how you worship this morning... Have you been shown more of what you worship, your comfort, your ideas, yourself? Are you truly worshiping the God of the Bible this morning as he calls you to? I pray that these 10 tests from Romans 12 will help you answer that question and to worship God in a way that is truly pleasing to him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we are insufficient and you are all sufficient. So we throw ourselves happily and confidently into your arms, relying on you, leaning on those everlasting arms, knowing that you will provide us with your Holy Spirit to understand your word, to fill our hearts, and to live lives of true worship to you. Do that, we pray, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.